Uh, today we are on our final sermon on Esther. So we're going to wrap this thing up. Um, I heard somebody the other day say, Bob's a magician. He turned a nine-week series into 18 weeks. Um, yeah, I did. I'm a magician. <laughs> so we're going to finish up, and we're going to get some principles out of this that we can carry over. We encourage you, if, if there's some that you missed, you can go to our website, fcministries.com, and you can hear some of the ones that you missed. Each one uh, brings out particular uh, um, principles and ideas from the book of Esther that I think are important. But as we look at this today, I, I entitled this um, an end and a beginning because it's the end of the book, but also it's the beginning of something. Uh, and, and, and as I was thinking about this, wrapping this up, I was thinking about in our world, you know, sometimes I can get up here and talk and I know I can sound like some old guy rambling on about, you know, how tough it was back in the day, you know, all that kind of stuff you hear from people. But it is true empirically, just from data, it is true in our world, it seems like hopelessness is on the rise. Depression is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Drug abuse is on the rise. Now, I'm not an old man rambling about the good old days in this. I'm just saying this is the way things are. This is what we are told. There, are, there is fear. There are divisions. There is the demonization of others that is going on. Loneliness is on the rise. And yet we're more connected than ever. Anxiety is on the rise. People start putting their hope in something. It doesn't fall through. So then they, and they bounce from one hope to another and to another. And Esther is a story of hopelessness. It's a story of some people who hit rock bottom. And when we finish today, we see their hope is fully realized. Now, just a reminder, we're in the 5th century BC. We're in the Persian Empire, the greatest empire in the world at that time. The king is Xerxes. Some Jews at this time have been allowed to return to Jerusalem, but some didn't. Some stayed. Some are in, are in other parts of the empire where they were taken when they were deported from, from Jerusalem and from Israel. So there are some who are in Susa, which is the winter capital of the Persian empire, and they're facing annihilation. They're facing ethnic cleansing. There's a man named Haman. He's the number two man. He's the prime minister of the kingdom. He has deceived the king into issuing an edict based on his hatred for a Jew named Mordecai and his hatred of Jews in general. This edict has been passed and sent everywhere, this plot to, to kill and annihilate all Jews. He cast he ca literally, it's, he cast a purr. What, what that is, is, is uh, those are probably the, uh, like diamond-sided, any of you play dice games, diamond-sided dice, uh, like a little pyramids, and, and it's, it's a way they would try to divine the future. They had a, a way of doing that. And so Haman did this to determine what was the best day in the whole year to kill all the Jews. And through this divination, he came up with the 13th day of the 12th month. If you read this book, this keeps coming up this day of the month of Adar. All right? So spread throughout the empire, people, this edict's telling people, throughout the empire, you can band together. And on this day, this day only, you can kill Jews and take everything they have. All right? And the authorities won't hold you back in some in some way most interpret this to be the authorities will kind of will kind of help you 
And, and also in, implicit in this is that the Jews are not allowed to band together. They're not allowed to fight back. And so throughout the empire, people were planning to take houses and goods and lands and livestock and children. And so there was this great time of, of mourning, of despair, of hopelessness. This was a nightmare come true for them. But we see in this book, as hopes begin to rise, Esther, in obedience, decides to risk her life for the sake of her people. She patiently works a plan that she has devised, and it works, and Haman is exposed. But still, the edict is irreversible. And so they work out a counter-edict, and that's where we were left at the end of chapter 8. And so we have two edicts now that cannot be reversed. One says you can destroy and annihilate the Jewish people on this date. The other says the Jews are allowed to band together and defend themselves. It gives them that permission. So on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, we pick up this story and God delivers his people. The theme we've been talking about the whole time, God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. So we have the final act of Esther. And I want us to see, we're going to see three things about our God, about Esther and the Jews' God, but about our God also and how we can apply it to our lives. So number one, he's a God of reversals. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, The edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So he's saying, okay, on this day, the nightmare day for the Jews, for their enemies, this was going to be this great victory. Death and destruction for Jews, getting all their lands, plundering their homes and their livestock and, and, and everything that's involved with this. This is the day that by the throwing of Pur, the gods had told them, this is the day to kill them. All right? And so this now, suddenly the tables are turned. You know, in some ways, this is still the plan of the evil one. The destruction of the people of God, or if not destruction to render them impotent and helpless. And because this edict could not be overturned, we have two counter-edicts on the same day. One of the things I think about when I see this is even even in spite of the fact that governments can make laws and governments can say to do this and governments can say to do that, laws don't change the human heart, right? We understand that. Rules don't change a human heart. Even if rules are enforced, parents can enforce rules on their children, but it doesn't change their heart. The other day, I was driving down Warwick Boulevard, and up ahead, I saw a side street, and just poking out was the nose of a police car. And because I was doing well under the speed limit, I had no worries. No. What did I do? I hit the brakes. Did I suddenly think, you know, I should obey the law? As a Christian and as a citizen of this country, I should do the speed limit. My heart has changed. Right? I slowed down to 45 miles an hour from not an outrageous speed. Okay, let's not get crazy here. I slowed down to 45 miles an hour. I passed this policeman, smiled nicely, went a little further, and slowly started speeding up. 
Why? Because my heart's not changed. Speed limit laws don't change my heart. Only God can change my heart. And so we have these governmental degrees, decrees, but they won't change hearts. And we have to understand that. That's something important for us to remember. That's why he tells us, God tells us, we're citizens of heaven. Because our ultimate citizenship is not here. Now, it doesn't work if you get pulled over by a policeman and you say, well, I'm a citizen of heaven. <laughs> so, sorry. Although, I, one of my brothers, oh, if he hears this, he'll kill me. One of my brothers, he was a missionary to Portugal, and then they would come home for furloughs, and he would be in the habit of when he was in Portugal, he kept his U.S. driver's license so he could play dumb. And when he was in the U.S., he kept his Portuguese driver's license so that when he got pulled over, he would start speaking Portuguese to the, to the officer. And sometimes they go, yes, yes, no, go, go, don't, no speed, you know, like that. Like, they, like, like, they're talking, like they're talking to a kid, you know, gracias, gracias, and off he'd go. Steve, if you're listening to this, forgive me. Okay, so here we go. So for months this has been coming. The enemies of the Jews have been planning this for months. This is the day their gods had chosen. And the reverse occurs. It gets flipped upside down. The Jews gain mastery. The Jews triumph and defeat those who hate them. It says in verse 2, the Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. Next. And the nobles of, those, of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because, the fear, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. So now we see Mordecai has been made prime minister. This made the government swing who, was gonna, who it was going to help in these two edicts. And so the Jews... Had we'd already seen, they've been celebrating because they're beginning to see that there's help and their hope. Think of the reversals in this book. You know, it begins by describing the greatness of Xerxes, this book, and it ends by describing the praises of Mordecai. It begins with this great feast, and it ends with the Jews feasting. It begins with Haman's plot to kill the Jews, and it ends with the Jews killing Haman's followers who have attacked them. It begins with Esther hiding her Jewish identity and it ends with people at the end of chapter 8, people becoming Jews because of how they've seen God has worked. It goes from the threat of extermination to growth and security and honor. Our God is a God of reversals. He can reverse the irreversible. He's the God of the impossible. He's the God who gives life to the dead. He calls into existence things that do not exist. This is our God. Do you ever feel hopeless? Do you ever feel stuck? Do you ever feel like you're in a situation where there is no way out? You can see no way out. Do you ever look at the world in despair, at the divisions, at the hatred, at the racism, at unjust accusations, at unjust abuse of powers? Do you feel like there's no hope that nothing short of a miracle, nothing short of divine intervention can help? That's not necessarily a bad place to be because that's what's key for us. We have to remember this. On a personal level, my only hope in this world is divine intervention. Your only hope in this world is divine intervention. And we have a God who can reverse the irreversible. He can reverse any evil 
because he's the great redeemer. He's also the God of justice and righteousness. So look at this. He's the God of reversals. He's the God of justice. Now, this is not on your screen. I, I squeezed it down some, so I'm just going to read from, from the book of Esther. It's, uh, this is in chapter 9, verse 6. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Uh, and then it lists the 10 sons of Haman. It lists these people. And, and the interesting thing here is, is this is in the citadel. This is in the castle, in a sense, there were people who were on Haman's side, people who agreed with Haman. And, and in an effort to try to reverse the way things seemed to be going with Mordecai, they rose up on that day because they knew if they killed Jews, they couldn't be punished. But it failed for them. In verse 11, it says, The number of those slain in the citadel was reported to the king on that same day. And so the counter-edict is working and the king goes to Esther and he says, is there anything else you need? Is there anything else I can do? Think about this great reversal. In the beginning, it was the queen coming to the king in fear of her life. She risked her life to enter into the audience of the king that she had not been called into. So therefore, if he says, uh, no, I don't want to hear from you, she, she's killed. She risks her life to go into his presence and ask for something. And now what's happening? He's coming to her and he's saying, anything else? What else do you want? I mean, I'm like, ask for a car, a chariot. You know, this is when you can get anything you want. And what does she ask for? She says, give us another day in the citadel. Give us another day. There's more people. Give us another day. So uh, in verse 16, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them but did not lay hands on the plunder. This is important. They did not take the plunder. This is about justice. Now, this kind of stuff can make us squirm sometimes. In, in chapter 8, I dealt with that some. There's, there's, there's a couple of verses there that, that, that we go, ooh, and we kind of dealt with that and the realities of what things were like in that day. And last week we addressed them. You can listen if you want. But I will be the first to admit there have been some horrible things done in history in the name of God. Some terrible things have been done in the name of God. But in this situation, I was trying to think of a modern analogy that we could hold on to. Imagine a situation where a whole race of people are under threat. Imagine a madman who has said, I've found the final solution to exterminate all these people. It's not hard to see it. It was less than 100 years ago in Germany, in Nazi Germany. It's kind of an eerie parallel when you start to look at it. The Nazi regime caused deaths of millions and millions of people. And millions died to end it. But if there was any war in modern times that comes close to what we would call a just war, it's got to be World War II. Hitler was a madman. He was killing millions of Jews out of pure hatred, out of pure evil, just like Haman. Haman wanted to kill millions of Jews just out of pure hatred and pure evil. And so what happened? The world rose up and decided we have to do something. This can't go on. There was a man during that time named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German, um, he was a pastor, a Christian, and, and a theologian. 
And part of his theology was he was a pacifist. He, he said there is never a just war. And he, he writes, there has never been a just war and there will never be a just war. And in the 1930s, he saw the church crumbling. He was in what was called the confessing church. And their numbers dwindled because they held to scripture. And the official church that the Nazis endorsed, first they eliminated the whole Old Testament and said it's, it runs counter to Germans. So the Old Testament. And then they started cutting out pieces of the New Testament because they felt like it, it ran counter to the fatherland, to Germany. And he fought that. And at one point, he came to the U.S. in the late 30s. He came to the U.S. He was offered a position. And they said, you know, he was under increasing persecution. They said, you're going to be killed. Come to the U.S. He came to the U.S. And after about two months, he said, this was a mistake. And then he said, I am no longer a pacifist. And he went, went back to Germany and got involved with a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Because he realized that Hitler was a monster, and he realized that God is committed to eradicating evil in this world, and incredible evil must be dealt with, in spite of sometimes the difficulty of doing it and how horrific it can be. He was arrested and then later executed for his faith in Christ and his opposition to the Nazi government. But he changed his mind. Once he realized what was happening, he said that. What was happening to the Jews made him realize, I cannot be a pacifist here. Not here. Not with this. So this first edict goes out. And I'm telling you, millions of people were, had time to plan and get ready to kill Jews. To steal from Jews who weren't allowed to defend themselves. And the second edict comes out. And most of those people decided not to kill Jews. They saw what was happening. They saw that this, is, this had gotten infinitely more difficult, but some still did. And, and they, they were killed. They were killed. And so we see God believes in justice. How comforting is that for us? In a world where we see injustice all the time, to have a God who says, I'm grounded in justice, is incredibly comforting for us. And so... This situation, although maybe not ideal, is necessary because we need to keep in mind God is against evil and he wants to eradicate it. And let's be sure to say, including the evil that is in you and me. He is against it. He wants to eradicate it. We know in obedience, we come to him and accept the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ. He deals with it. But if we in disobedience say no, he still deals with it. He's so committed to eradicating evil that he sent his son into the world. He lived the perfect life. He went to the, his death on the cross. And now we see we can have forgiveness of the evil that would condemn us. He sends his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that the things that grieve him begin to grieve us. As he, he works that. So we have a God of reversals. We have a God of justice. And the final thing is we have a God of celebration. The greatest nightmare has been averted. Their mourning has turned to gladness. 
It says in verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when Jews got relief from their enemies and as, as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and mourning into the day of celebration, he wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai, he records this, he sends this out, he says, we're gonna celebrate this forever. We're gonna never forget, never forget. One of the things that a Jewish Israelite soldier, man or woman, recites when they take their oath is, I will never forget. Because they have a lot of things in their history that they never want to forget. Looking back to... uh, uh, with Nazi Germany or, or, or with Masada when the Romans or all the way back to King Xerxes in the book of Esther. I will never forget. So in verse 26, it says, I, I don't have it, I'll just read it. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word poor, poor, where he cast this, the uh, Cast the P-U-R, not P-O-O-R. And these days, Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So he says, let's do this every year. Mordecai sends a letter. Esther sends a letter. Let's do this every year. Let's throw a party. Celebrate. Good time. Come on. Dun, 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 dun. Right? You guys, come on. Haman, his plans were turned on his head. There's this huge celebration. The Feast of Purim, it goes on today. All around the world, the Jews gather. They have costumes, they have feasts, they have parades. They give gifts to each other. They give gifts to the poor. They have this giant celebration. They have this cool thing. I think the little kids must love it. They read the whole book of Esther. They gather together. They read the whole book of Esther. And then whenever Haman's name is mentioned, the kids have these noisemakers that they, they make a noise and they hiss. Whenever Haman's... So every time it says Haman, they go... Which reminds you, we need baby bottles. I thought I'd bring that up. But they make, they're called groggers. That's what they call them. They're called groggers. These make great groggers. They're great noisemakers. So every time you hear Haman think, I need to put some coins in a baby bottle. Yep, that's what it says. They also, unfortunately, uh, it's also a day of great drinking. There's a, a rabbi in the, uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I just thought it was funny. In the uh, Babylonian Talmud, he says, at Purim, I want you to drink until you can't tell the difference between Arur Haman, which means cursed be Haman, and Baruch Mordecai, which means blessed be Mordecai. He says, drink until you can't tell the difference between those two phrases. And it was interesting because I was on a, a website. It was a conservative Jewish website, and they were saying, but always make sure to have a designated driver. So I'm not sure how that works. Um, one rabbi said, let the fragrance of wine be so strong on you. And uh, somebody said, that's where stinking drunk came from. I'm not sure. I don't endorse this, okay? <laughs> no, you are not allowed to go back and say, Pastor Bob said, <laughs> what day is that feast, you know? <laughs> right, no, I don't endorse it. It's not a biblical command. But they would read the whole book. 
And it was, it's, a, it's a day of great, it's just, just a day of pure celebration. Why are they doing that? What's the purpose? To celebrate what we've been talking about all these weeks, the promises and the providence of God. His hidden hand, his history is celebrated when they read this book every year. Never forget, never forget. And so they rehearse God's providence. They read it with their children. They talk to them. They talk about this obscure orphan who suddenly married the richest man. And you talk about the original crazy rich Asian. This is it. She marries this incredibly rich man and she's elevated to this position of authority. What are the chances? Mordecai tells Esther, don't shrink back. In this book, he says, don't shrink back. Your life is at stake. I understand that. But who knows, maybe this is the position you've been put in at this time for this, particularly for this. And she becomes a courageous woman. She shows her courage. She shows her brilliance. She has this brilliant plan. She's a master psychologist in how she reads Xerxes and then adjusts to the things he's saying so that she moves him in the direction she wants him to go. She tells them to fast and pray. She risks her life. She devises that plan of multiple feasts, knowing that if she just stops at one feast, it will not, probably will not happen like she wants it to. And we see Haman, he wants to kill Mordecai. He goes to the king to kill him. And just, just before he opens his mouth to tell the king, I want to kill Mordecai, the king says, hey, I couldn't sleep last night. And I realized there's this man I need to honor. What should I do to honor the man that I delight in? Haman's like, yeah, that's me, right? He thinks so. And then he tells him, no, it's Mordecai. And the next day, Haman ends up being killed at the place where he had planned to kill Mordecai. So as we look at this book, what does this mean to us? What can we take from this book? In this chapter... It teaches us, get in the habit of remembering what God has done for you in the past. Rehearse his promises and providence. Rehearse the times you've seen him work in your life. Think of things like who or what did God use to bring you to Jesus Christ? Who or what did God use to bring you, to to grow you at times where you needed growth? How has he answered prayers in your life? He says, remember them, never forget Never forget. Write them down. Praise him. The milestones in your life. The good things that have happened. God says, I'm in this. I'm in this. We are to build memorials to his goodness. That's why we do communion. That's why we do communion. This is a memorial. This is a way of remembering. Jesus said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance. Remembering what Jesus has done. Remembering the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, the sins that were dealt with on a cross. This is not a ritual. It's a commemoration. It's a remembrance. It's a picture that makes us focus on Jesus Christ. At the end of the book, it says that Mordecai was held in high esteem because he had worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. He used his position, his ability, and his authority 
for good. How do you use your position, your abilities, your authority, your wealth? How do you use it? This is what is challenging. Are we focused on the welfare of others? Or am I simply focused on me, on getting more, accumulating, building more, making my life more convenient? What is my focus on this earth? Mordecai focused on others. He uses influence for good. It's very interesting. It says, and he spoke up for the welfare of all the people. He, he was continually encouraging and building the welfare of all his people. And that word welfare is the word shalom. This idea of wholeness, this idea of peace, this idea of blessedness. He worked for healing, for wholeness, for peace, for blessedness for people. He's a humble worker working for the good of others. God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. Look for opportunities to bring peace and be good to people. Why? Because we have an ultimate peace that is coming. And we want to be ones that show the way. We want to be ones that say, follow me. I'm going this way. How do you use your position, your authority, your wealth, your skills, your abilities? Do you use it for yourself or do you use it for others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, this incredible series of lessons that you've been teaching us over these weeks. Father, help, you, help us not to quickly forget and move on. Help us to think and remember. Help us to take things to heart. And in doing so, you work in our lives. Your spirit works and we change from the inside out because we are dealing with a power that is far greater than any other power in this world. We're dealing with a power that can change hearts for eternity. Lord, help us to understand that, to recognize that, and to act accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.